0: management.
1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome
0: to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad you could join us. I'm so excited about our topic today. We've got five guests. They're all superstars in the green building industry, and I'm thrilled to have them on. I met each One of them last week at an event called Greener Builder 2016. It was hosted by the USGBC, that's US Green Building Council's Northern California chapter. And right now we're joined by the chapter director. Brenda, uh, I'm sorry, Brenda <laughs> Brendan MacInnity and uh, Peter Rumsey, and Peter is the founder of Point Energy Innovations and is internationally recognized for his innovation and leadership in the sustainability and energy um, efficiency fields. And actually, he has designed more lead platinum zero energy and radiant cooled buildings than any other engineer in the U.S. He's also a professor at Stanford. And Peter, welcome to the show. It's such an honor to have you on go green radio
2: yeah thank you very much jill
0: you know as the ceo and founder of point energy innovations your company is uniquely poised to help california building owners and designers adapt to net zero energy standards talk to our listeners about your company's experience and your passion for net zero energy buildings
2: Yeah, um, you know, it's a very interesting thing because it was a short time ago that that net zero energy buildings and even a lot of the green buildings were only being attempted by um, small buildings, nonprofits, environmental groups, things like that. Um, it over the last ten years has been a rapid transformation and now green buildings have moved into the mainstream we're working on projects now with tech companies we're working with on projects with uh, large developers um, all around the country and even outside of the us on projects that want to be very aspirational we're working on projects that are Labeled net zero energy projects, that that that's a building that makes all of its own energy, and it, it it's no longer a um, you know a sideline thing. It's it's coming into the mainstream, and we're going to see a lot more of that in the future.
0: You know, at the conference at Greener Builder 2016, you moderated a panel that discussed how and why developers need to be incentivized on the business case for investing in zero net energy. And typically, we think of the building occupants or the people who will, you know, operate the building as the ones that are reaping all the rewards. Uh, for having a a zero-net-energy building. But is there a financial upside for developers as well? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, just to explain, most commercial office buildings are set up in such a way that the tenants pay for the electricity bills. So if a developer spent money to put a photovoltaic system on the roof of a building – all the benefits do go to the tenant who would no longer have an energy bill. So developers have traditionally said, why, why would I spend a dime on something like a photovoltaic system on my roof? Well, that paradigm is changing first and foremost because developers are seeing that they can generate electricity on their rooftops at a cost that's lower than the utility in many parts of the U.S. So what developers some savvy developers are starting to figure out is that they can offer, they can invest in the photovoltaic system on the roof of the building, and then they can offer to either sell the electricity to the tenants, add a green surcharge to the building, a variety of other a method so that the developer recuperates the cost of the investment of the PV system and the tenant gets 100% renewable energy in their building or in the space that they're leasing in the building. There's a lot of creative ways that people are looking at this. There's even a new uh, financial model where the, ten- the, 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 the owner of the building will lease the roof space to a utility who puts the and pays for the, the photovoltaics on the roof of the building.
0: Wow, that is creative. And I'm wondering, you know, that's kind of the commercial application. Is there any similar incentive for residential developers to do the same?
2: Yeah, there's... um... Lots of different um, ways that residential developers are looking at it. Right now, we have much higher penetration of photovoltaic systems in residential uh, buildings that are being built—not not not only multifamily, but but the single-family homes that are that we're seeing come up. And the the way developers get their money back is they say we're going to sell you a house. Standard house is X, and if you want the house with the optional photovoltaic system on the roof, we're going to charge a little bit extra for that. And so developers are fine with it. It's just like the, the list of options that they offer similar to, do you want ground, granite countertops? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're now offering, would you like the photovoltaic system on the roof?
0: Fantastic. Now, you know, I'm imagining that many of our listeners have never been inside a net zero energy building before, and they might think (laughs) it's less comfortable than a traditional building. You know, like, is it, you know, energy efficient because they don't turn the air conditioner on? Am I going to be sweaty? Is it going to be cold in the winter? Talk to us about what it's like to occupy a zero net energy building and some of the benefits that that kind of a building has for the occupants
2: yeah I think it's a major misconception that um, zero energy or low energy buildings are ones that that are uncomfortable what we're doing is we're trying to leverage the resources that are there and create better buildings that are more comfortable and let me give you two examples one is on lighting in a in a low-energy building we like to use daylight and we set up a building in a way that the daylight comes in without creating a lot of glare We'll have um, things, sunshades and light shelves. The lights will dim down automatically. And you have a, a very visually comfortable environment. It's low energy, but it's also very visually comfortable instead of all the glare and the heat that we get in, in a lot of the very glassy buildings that are being built today. And then <clears throat> the other example is if we, um, you know, think are thoughtful about the... Shading systems and the type of glass that we use in buildings. We're also going to be more thermally comfortable in the building and we won't be near a glassy window that's in the summer very hot or in the winter, winter very cold. And so we'll get people at a more comfortable place and at the same time we're saving energy. And there's lots of examples like that. We're not saying to people we need to Suffer or have less services in buildings, to have low energy buildings, or providing the same services, and in many cases, in a way that's more comfortable and more responsive to the people on the building.
0: You know, one of the things that I found so interesting on your Point Energy Innovations website was the work that you did on the Presidio Visitor Center. You know, a lot of times we think of a zero net energy building as something that was built to be that way. But you've done a lot of work to retrofit um, buildings to be zero net energy. And, you know, your work on the Presidio, I mean, this is a building that's an old military building. It's, you know, certainly nowhere near new. Um, Talk to our listeners about how a modern design can make an existing building more eco-friendly.
2: Yeah. Um, I think it's a great example because... What can we learn from older buildings, and what do we want to use today that we didn't have back then? That building is about 100 years old. It was designed before air conditioning was available, before fluorescent lights were available, and now moving to LED lighting. So so what we're doing in that is leveraging what was good about the building, which is it's got thick brick walls that hold in the heat um, in in the winter time and keep the building cool in the summer months. Um, It has nice tall windows that allow for natural ventilation and good daylight. We're leveraging all those things, but then we're at led lights that respond to the daylight we're adding in a good ventilation system to keep the air fresh even in the winter months when the windows might be closed so we're so we're combining the best of the old and the best of the new and and we're coming up with a building that is in a way um, it, it, it's very low energy it's got great air quality now And it's done in a way that's affordable because the bones of the building were great. So my feeling is green buildings and low-energy buildings or even the net-zero-energy buildings, they don't always have to be a new, ground-up building. Many older buildings can be adapted to this.
0: And that's great news, especially for a lot of our uh, listeners who are on the East Coast where older infrastructure is, you know, it's not going away. It's part of the... the charm of their neighborhoods, but uh, they can be made uh, to be more eco-friendly, more energy efficient. You know, Peter, I'm sure that it's not easy for someone who's as busy as you are, and, and a lot of the participants in the conference last week, um, you know, we're were busy, successful people, and you take a day away from the office, there must be some value that you see in a gathering like that, and some value in the Northern California chapter of the USGBC in general. Talk to us about that.
2: Yeah, I think the, the, the work that we're doing is innovation, and it's all about finding better ways to um, provide buildings and spaces for people to live and work. So, innovation is a it's a tough thing. It's it's really about combining all the best ideas that are out there. So, without this getting together and sharing ideas openly and in the spirit of helping the community... Um, Innovation would be a lot slower. In in buildings, and especially green buildings, the group of professionals working on this, it's a fantastic group of men and women who love sharing their experiences. And as a consequence, this green building field has really accelerated over the last decade. And I I, I credit that a lot to an atmosphere of sharing um, our, our lessons learned as well as our successes.
0: Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Go Green Radio. It was just wonderful yeah. to have you. We're going to transition to yeah. Brendan. Brendan McEnany is the director, as I mentioned, of the USGBC Northern California chapter. Um, and Brendan, you know, you put together this amazing program for Greener Builder 2016. Um, the, the conference was meant to examine several key sustainability trends that are currently shaping the building industry. What are some of those key trends?
3: Yeah, thanks, Joe. Well, you know, so three things that I would probably point to. Um, the first one is actually what Peter's been talking about thus far is zero net energy. And so here in Northern California, we're very lucky to have a lot of the uh, design knowledge and expertise on delivering these high performance buildings. But the state of California has very ambitious and aggressive goals to see zero net energy buildings be the law of the land um, for new buildings going forward. So I would say thus far the emphasis has been a bit more on maybe the technological elements or the design elements that get you to a zero net energy building. What was really interesting about Peter's presentation and his panel was focusing on some of the other challenges to overcome, namely the investment model and how net zero energy buildings can be Woven more into the, uh, the real estate development world. So we're seeing sort of a, uh, a maturation of the conversation around zero net energy buildings and how we deliver them. So zero net energy would be the first one. I think the second one, though, is, uh, as you know, the U.S. Green Building Council has our LEED rating system. LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And in October, the fourth version of the LEED rating system sort of becomes – the only version that you can use anymore. So every Mm -hmm. few years, we modify this rating system to reflect the fact that the building industry is changing. Technologies change, building codes change, and so we need to evolve the system to sort of raise the bar along with the state of the market. The Mm -hmm. last version of the rating system was LEED 2009, and so now we're going to this new version uh, that I think a lot of people are trying to understand what that'll mean for their projects. And then the last uh, thing that I'd point out is just a really interesting emphasis on health and wellness. So sustainability has always looked at things like water conservation and renewable energy, but looking at health and wellness of the occupants of a building is really something we're seeing out in the marketplace.
0: Fantastic. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Brendan, and we'll be joined by a couple more guests that I'll introduce in just a moment. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: News. your world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today
4: at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss.
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Last week, I went to a fantastic event. It was called Greener Builder 2016, and it was hosted by the Northern California chapter of the U.S. Green Building Council. And today, we have several of the folks who were at that conference on the show. During this segment, we have Bob Wallace and Rick Costanza. They're the president and vice president, respectively, of Energy ETC, and that isn't... a company that helped to put together the energy management systems for the building in which the conference was held. And it just so happens that this building is a zero-net energy building, and it it was a fantastic opportunity to get a tour and look and see all of the different systems that they put in place in order to make this building work. So let's start with Bob. Uh, Bob, the, the Greener Builder 2016 conference was just a fantastic event the program was awesome and we've talked to Brendan about that Um, but this venue for the event is a training facility for electricians which I think is so great that it's a zero-net energy building talk to us about how you were able to integrate opportunities for the students to learn about renewable energy and energy management and how you incorporated that into the design of the building itself
5: well thank you Jill Um, it's very fortunate in the sense that several years ago, the IBEW and NECA had the insight to understand that technologies were coming in the in the greener building arena, that they, they were going to need to train their workforce to be able to support from an installation and understanding level. So they made the commitment, and they continued to have the focus to look for a new facility and build this new facility or actually renovate an existing facility and deploy these individual standalone solutions of lighting, intelligent lighting, and HVAC, VRF systems, operable windows, all these individual systems. And these are, again, systems that the electricians and the workforce have to understand how to install the interconnections for and make work in in an electrical sense. So in being able to deploy these systems on-site and then allowing them to be in, uh, having us come through and help integrate all these systems into a common platform, they're able to not only learn about the systems in a, from a book level, but actually to experience it live in their facility and interact with the systems from their AV presentations, being able to log into the dashboards and look at the deeper underpinnings of the systems and understand how that works. So they don't have to do field trips. The, mm-hmm. the field is right in their, their actual learning center.
0: That's brilliant. I just love that. Rick, talk to us about some of the smart features of the building. For instance, um, you know, I was sitting in the the main uh, building uh, facility that for the conference where you know all the plenary sessions were held and at one point it was getting a little stuffy and then we heard a noise going on and we realized that the windows were opening um, and everybody was like oh fresh air it was great what triggers the windows to open what other smart features does the building have incorporated in the design
6: oh well, that's a that's a great great observation because that is one of the cool uh, features of the Z-Neck. Um, the fact that the, that each classroom, each zone has windows that can open automatically based on outdoor conditions, indoor conditions, um, really helps make that a green building. The windows act as a first stage of cooling. So, you know, why turn on mechanical cooling when you can use fresh air
5: mm-hmm. and
6: really bring in that, that beautiful outdoor air that's, that's nice and fresh? Um, There's also a feature that um, every night, those windows and the rooftop monitors open to flush the building out. So overnight, the building actually brings in as much fresh air as it possibly can. So the next morning, you know, everybody comes into a nice, fresh building.
0: That is so cool. And are there CO2 triggers or, or exactly, you know, how does that work?
6: Yeah, CO2 was initially planned to go in, but unfortunately, uh, budgetarily, it it did not happen. Mm-hmm. But in the next phase, that's certainly we're we're ready for that, and that would be a great um, addition. So that so that even before it got stuffy, those windows were were already opening.
0: That's so cool. Now, Bob, I got to take a tour of the facility, and you mentioned that in some cases you had to tweak some of the building's features as you watched how it performed, and I'd love for you to give us some examples of how things like motion censored lighting um, and other features of the building had to be changed or tweaked over time.
5: Well, that that's very important, and you, you, the The operation of the facility is a very learning process. While we initially had a design and an energy efficiency specification of how things should operate, we we all went into it understanding that this would just be the first steps, and then we'd be continually learning from the data collection and the alarming and the enunciations as to the erratic conditions that we might have seen or the systems might have seen. And and in the case of the motion sensors, we were we were alerted to the fact that lighting energy was being utilized in various classrooms that very unique hours of the day. I mean, we're all committed, but 3 a.m. in the morning, we'd see alerts coming in that says we have power activation, lights activation in the spaces. And mm-hmm. after a few more reports and a little more head-scratching and conversations, we noticed that the windows, the natural ventilation that Rick just mentioned, was that, that ventilation and those activations of the windows, that movement was causing our motion sensors to <laughs> activate. We had our sensitivity so Sensitive that that actual motivation, motion of those windows activated lighting, the circuits, and from that we were able to go back and understand that we needed to adjust, tweak, you know, refine the settings of the motion sensor. So in a sense, that motion of the windows did not activate, but we still had the proper coverage for activity in the space to maintain you know lighting action when the when the space was full.
0: Well, and I remember you also mentioned that, you know, you had a system where when somebody walked into the room, everything activated the HVAC system, the lighting, and that, that could go on for 10 or 15 minutes. But in actuality, you know, if somebody just went into the room to grab a piece of paper, you didn't need all that. So how did you tweak the system based on, you know, that type of use of the building?
5: Well, that that was pretty. Well, as we look back on that, we we figured that wasn't a real smart initial move, but it was great because it was new new activity, and we're going to light the space up when you walk in. And you're absolutely correct; people would come in, instructors would come in, grab what they need, and leave. So, traditionally, uh, making some of those changes globally across the whole building could be expensive. Um, having those local, uh, the lighting technician come out and actually have to work locally and make all those changes from their workstation could have been a timing issue and a cost issue. But since the data is integrated into the systems, our decision was to say, hey, let's make it an on-demand solution when you walk in, that if you're going to come in and stay in the space, you're going to have to request the lights from the local uh, lighting panel, or you're going to have to request your HVAC from the local thermostat. At that point, um, we recognize that if we could go to an on-demand, this would be great. Now we said we tested that, and that was perfect. Everything worked accordingly, made more sense. Um, we said, how do we deploy this across all the other zones? And from the um, unification of the data from the, the workstations, we were able to say, well, it'll take about 15, 20 minutes. Let's just go ahead and change that setting and propagate that into the lighting system. So once we realized this was a better move, it was very simple and quick to implement because of the integration of all of these systems. We didn't have to worry about the individual solution provider coming out and having to work with that system. It was immediate.
0: Wow. That's really, that's really cool. You know, Rick, I'd love for you to talk to us about ways that the building's users get feedback on how the facility is performing from an energy perspective, and why that type of information is is valuable to building occupants. Oh, great, yes.
6: Very prominently displayed in the lobby is an energy dashboard. It's a big 60-inch LED monitor, which is kind of the heartbeat to what's going on in the building at any time. And interestingly enough, that display is also part of the green features because it doesn't come on unless there are actually people in the lobby, Mm. which is kind of neat. But on there, we can watch uh, live how much the renewables are generating, how much the building is using, and compare that to the zero net energy factor so we know whether we're in the positive or the negative at any given moment. We then calculate that to how much carbon is being avoided and, and other interesting facts like that right on the display. It actually becomes kind of like a, you know, people get mesmerized by it. They stand in front mm-hmm. and just kind of, it's like watching the stock market go by moment mm-hmm. by moment. <laughs> and the same information can actually be displayed in each of the classrooms as well as a teaching uh,
0: tool. That is so cool. That is really, really neat. You know, Bob, there's a lot of talk these days about creating green jobs, but there's, you know, the everyday individual doesn't always understand exactly what a green job is. And I'd love for you to spend a a minute telling us what role Energy ETC plays in creating both green jobs and the workforce to fill them.
5: Well, really up to, again, the the IBEW and NECA had the foresight to understand that they had to train for the upcoming building technology. So they embraced that several years ago, and and obviously this facility is is part of the outcome of that. And so they're training, they're bringing people up, and they're retraining the existing workforce and bringing everybody up in the knowledge of intelligent lighting systems and HVAC and so forth. And then there's the other side of uh, where EnerGTC gets involved is in the promotion of the facility in itself for the local area. So, you know, the marketing side is bringing in all the um, construction groups, general contractors, the designers, cities, schools, to come in and take a look and say, this, this is what can happen. So while they're training for the workforce, they're also educating to the developers and the future users of this technology. Once you've got the future users on board with how this is should be deployed and the benefits of doing so, Energy DC gets involved with the actual execution and implementation, bringing on the workforce, putting the work on the projects that are being you know mandated and driven by the um, knowledge base. The, the more knowledgeable folks now wanting to, to use this technology in the buildings.
0: That is so exciting, and I think you know for kids today, it's really important for the students of of this generation to know that there are green jobs out there at every educational level, you know, and that's what uh, this building, this training facility, and um, folks like Brendan in the Northern California chapter of the USGBC are helping to illuminate for these students. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk to Brendan about that green jobs issue a little bit, and we'll also be joined by Byron Benton, um, who is the training. Training director um, at this facility, and he's got some great, great information for us. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: News, News. News. opinions. Your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. your world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com.
0: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating
3: talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast.
1: All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And in case you've only just joined us, let me catch you up. Our topic today is... All about an event that I went to last week. It was called Greener Builder 2016. And it was hosted by the Northern California chapter of the US Green Building Council. And we have the director of that chapter on with us right now, Brendan Macanini. And Brendan, I want to ask you, you know, we were talking about green jobs in the last segment, and your chapter of the USGBC provides resources for industry transformation to build and maintain sustainable communities. And I'd like for you to talk to us about some of the types of green jobs your members have. Help our listeners understand the breadth of careers involved in creating sustainable communities.
3: Sure. Well, you know, I think very directly, um, green building as an industry has started to create a whole niche sector of jobs specific to delivering high-performance buildings. So lead consultants, sustainability consultants, energy efficiency specialists, green home and healthy living experts, there's a whole sector out there of folks who are just specializing in how to make buildings healthier uh, and higher performance. But beyond that, we really work across the entire spectrum of professions that touch buildings, which, as you can imagine, spans a huge uh, range. So everything from architects, engineers, uh, builders, designers, but also product manufacturers and landscape designers, um, local government, urban planners. um, And and as we we heard maybe a little bit earlier in the segment, is real estate development and investors. So more and more, um, some of the elements of green building and sustainability are being embedded into these traditional sectors that have touched the built environment. I think the last area where we're trying to get to is the realization that, every job should probably have some component of sustainability. A lot of what we're looking at is behavioral change and getting people to understand uh, how sustainability can affect their job. So we're, that's where we're moving towards is somewhere where every job has some way uh, to affect the built environment around your own profession.
0: I love that. You know, we're also going to bring on Byron Benton. And Byron is a 25-year veteran electrician and electrical training professional. And he is the training director at the facility where this conference was held. And he oversees all aspects of the apprenticeship and training program for IBEW Local 595 and the Northern California chapter of NECA. And this... Zero net energy center that he's been a part of and oversees is just phenomenal. I, I was blown away by all of the, you know, green aspects of the building. And Byron, one of the most remarkable things about the building is that. It was retrofitted to operate so efficiently. It wasn't built from the ground up to be a zero-net energy center. Talk to us about why the decision was made to embark on such an ambitious goal to create a zero-net energy facility.
7: Um, Hi, Jill. It's nice to be on your show. Well, originally our intent was to create the optimum learning environment for our students. We train apprentices go to school here for five years And we really look at the electrical apprentices who will soon be journey-level electricians as the foot soldiers of this 21st century green economy. So with that mindset of a training center that embodies all the new technologies buildings will need to be high-performing, maybe two weeks before we interviewed our architects, the trustees decided, could we possibly renovate a 1981 existing commercial building to become zero net. We really didn't know the answer, but the design team went down that path to say, let's see if it's possible. About six months went by and we realized we really could do it. We were going to be able to pull this off. We went back to our trustees for IBW NECA, showed them the progress we had made, and then they said, go for it. And really in the end, it was about IBW NECA wanting to walk the walk when it comes to this conversation about using less energy so that we can have a cleaner environment while at the same time providing training for people here in this country to now go out and do those work, to do that work with sustainable jobs. So that's why we did it.
0: You know, I was looking at the literature that you gave me about the building, and I read that the center proves that retrofitting a decades old commercial building can result in net zero energy performance with now, this is the part where we underline the same budget. Most projects use to achieve code compliance for our listeners who might be considering a retrofit of their own building. Talk to us about how that's possible. I think the the general understanding is that if you're going to go for it, if you're going to create a zero-net energy building, it's going to be at a much higher budget than code compliance. Talk to us about that.
7: Sure. Well, with the new Title 24 and the new building codes, it's very strict as far as your energy consumption, how your lighting systems work. So in reality, what we've done here is, you have to take advantage of your natural resources. Number one is natural light. Obviously, then there's the natural ventilation component. And I don't know if you noticed or not, but say in our grand lecture room where we had over 300 people there for the event, before we turned on our HVAC system and used all that power, the first thing that happened is the operable windows opened, both in the storefront glass and in the roof monitors in the ceiling. And then our large fans came on to move that air. And just that alone, this highly efficient way of moving air, provides the sensation that it's actually 10 degrees cooler than it actually is. So if it's thought through and you take advantage of your resources and your climate in the area, it's absolutely possible to do a high-performing, if not zero-net building for the same cost as your typical commercial building that's meeting the current Title 24 codes.
0: That is exciting. Uh, that's, that was kind of a, an aha moment for me when I read that. You know, I also read that one of the strategies that you used early in the design phase was to integrate subconsultants with the builder. How did that strategy impact the design, the schedule, and the cost of the project?
7: Well... We were trying to do something, frankly, that had not been done before, and that was to renovate a 1981 approximately 50,000-square-foot building to achieve zero-net status. So without really having the blueprint or someone else had done it before us, we wanted to have the right team on board. So for us, it started with an architect, a general contractor, an energy consultant, and then these other specialists that Brendan had mentioned, such as Energy ETC with the integration piece of it, Stoke with the energy systems, et cetera. And NOVA was our general contractor, and FCGA was our architect. So once we established, here's our team, how did it affect the overall project in the end? Of course, it took a little longer, because we went through a very comprehensive planning stage, where once we established what our goal was, optimum learning environment, here's our floor plan, then we considered various options that were brought to the table. Hey, how about trying this? Well, is that gonna affect our goal of optimum learning environment? Oh, okay, it's not. How much is it gonna cost? A little too pricey, let's try something else. So we went through this design charrette process over a period of months. But when we were done, the wonderful thing that happened is we ended up creating a building, as you could see, because you've been here, that exceeded all of our expectations. So it probably took a little bit longer, um, again, because it hadn't been done before. But in the end, it ultimately kept our costs in line, and the result was a building that exceeded all of our expectations even to this day.
0: You know, one of the strategies that you used early in the design phase um, was played out, um, you know, I I think in what I saw on the tour, and that was that everything had its place. You know, you could really see that every system had been integrated and that every system was well thought out so that, you know, the the building just seemed to fit together so perfectly. Um, It was almost as if one mind had come up with the whole thing, and that was actually the the mind of the designers. The, The literature that you gave me, you can probably tell I read it end to end because I was so interested interested, said that the greatest energy reduction design solution at the center is the lighting. And I'd love for you to talk to us about the various lighting solutions and the degree to which they impact the building's energy performance against similar existing buildings. Sure.
7: Here's one of the beautiful things about high-performance buildings. They're win-win buildings. And what I mean by that is this optimum learning environment I spoke of earlier Well a study was done by the National Lab in Berkeley. Buildings with ambient light in all of their rooms raises the energy levels of the occupants and that equates to improved work and academic performance. So number one was we want lots of natural light coming into our spaces here. So we took advantage of the existing glass that was in the building from 1981 We also added these structures in the roofs called roof monitors. And these roof monitors not only support the solar panels on top and help with the natural ventilation with venting windows on the east and west sides, but on the north they have windows that let the natural light indirectly come in and help light the spaces below. So number one was the natural light roof monitors. But what really surprised us were the solar tubes. So the solar tubes are maybe 18-inch domes on the roof that, ups- that the light come in from the sun. They go through a reflective chamber, and then they come out in these you know, 30-inch wide openings. You look up, and you actually think it's a fluorescent light fixture, and it's really the sun. So the solar tubes have been huge. Frankly, during the week and during the daytime, our hallways are primarily lit through the solar tubes, just using the sun alone. So that was... Of course, taking advantage of our resources, the natural environment. And then finally, we used a very high-end lighting control system by Lutron. And things like daylight sensors where there's ambient light, we can use less energy for our normal light fixtures if needed. We learned something, too, and what you're finding in these high-performance buildings is you want to manually turn light and air conditioning systems on, but then you want them to automatically be shut off when your occupancy sensors sense that no one's no longer in the space. So that was part of the lighting control, of course, you know, LED lighting, etc. And really the key is lighting control and reducing your cost for lighting. That's really the low-hanging fruit in all of our buildings. That's the one thing every building can do.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And such an inspirational story. You know, just before we go to break, I'd like to know how can, uh, whether it's a school or a commercial building, get a hold of the information that I have, this case study about the features of your building? Where can people go to get that information?
7: Well, that's the first case study. I just want you to know that we are now being asked to do a second case study. We're holding an event here in October called Prototyping the Future. Uh-huh. And that case study that has you've yet to see but I'd like you to see it when it comes out is gonna be about how are we doing in year three? How are we maintaining it? But uh-huh. the existing case study that exists that I shared with you, the best way to get that would be just simply to email me, okay, so I'll give it my best shot, but uh my email address is b benton at five nine five. J A T C. dot org.
0: Perfect. If you want me to Thank spell you.
7: that, I will.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You know what? Do that real quick for us, and then we'll sure. take a quick break.
7: Okay. So here it is. B is in boy. B is in boy again. E is in Edward. N is in Nancy. T is in Tom. O. N is in Nancy. At. Five nine five. J is in Jupiter, A is in Apple, T is in Tom, C is in Charles.org. O-R-G. Perfect.
0: Thank you so much, Byron. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, there's much more Go Green Radio, so don't go away, folks. We'll be back in just a moment.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us
4: today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss.
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And our guest for this segment has been on the whole show but this is uh, his moment. We're going to be talking with him exclusively about the Northern California chapter of the U.S. Green Building Council. He's the director. And in case you missed an earlier segment, his name is Brendan Macanini. And before he was the director of the Northern California chapter of the USGBC, he was the director for Urban Resilience at the Urban Land Institute. And He has spoken internationally on sustainability, green building, and environmental policy. And He's also a graduate of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And I'm so pleased that you could be on with us, Brendan. I'm so proud of you and your organization and the program that I saw uh, last week. If that's any indication of your uh, abilities and professionalism, I, I just am such a fan. Thanks for being on with us today.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Joe.
0: Well, you guys have something going on with the Northern California chapter um, called the Building Health Initiative, and I'd love for you to talk to us about it. What are the goals of the initiative, and who's involved?
3: Yeah, well, the Building Health Initiative was founded two years ago um, in our chapter. Um, I mentioned at the top of the program that we're seeing more and more in the marketplace that health and wellness are quickly becoming one of the hotter trends in sustainability. So it's not that we've moved on from you know, your standard issues of energy conservation and, and water conservation and things like that. It's just that I think more companies are realizing that this is a key element that they have to have to, for recruitment and retention um, of their own talent and to help their employees be productive, uh, to improve their well-being. They want to look at how the buildings that they're in Uh, can be a tool to address some of those issues. So our Building Health Initiative, um, we have almost 50 partners in that initiative. Um, And so just to sort of give a sense, we have one sector that we think of as kind of the owners or the operators, the corporate interests. So we have Google and Facebook and Genentech and Salesforce, um, lots of major players in the Bay Area, as well as groups like Kaiser Permanente, CalPERS, So it's a a span of different types of industry sectors. We also have brought together leading designers who work on healthy buildings um, such as Perkins & Will, HDR, HOK, and Arup. The other thing that I think is interesting is we brought together to the table manufacturers. So one of the key challenges we've been looking at is how to make sure that uh, building materials – have healthier components and ingredients in them. So we've brought together manufacturers like Interface and Armstrong and ViewClass to look at how the materials themselves can be a way to address health and well-being. And then lastly, we've also brought together uh, nonprofits and service providers and uh, folks like the Public Health Institute in the city and county of San Francisco. All of these groups are coming together sort of under the umbrella of USGBC's initiative to look at how health impacts are affected by the built environment, and how can buildings be a tool to improve health outcomes um, as a key component of sustainability.
0: I love that, and it spans, you know, really every conceivable space and workspaces, residential spaces, schools, and what have you. And so, I'm certain that, you know, what you'll learn and some of the best practices that come out of particularly here in the Bay Area, uh, your work will impact uh, folks, I can imagine, on a global scale. Now, your organization isn't just about education and bringing folks together. You also do some advocacy work, and I'd love for you to talk to us about how the organization engages in advocacy and some of the issues that are high on your priority list.
3: Sure. So there, are many, uh, there have been many chapters around California, and so we bring together staff members like myself, but also uh, what really drives us is our members, who are uh, people working on buildings um, in the design industry and in the construction industry, to try to push for best practices and best policies at the state level. Um, we certainly work locally, but a lot of our attention recently has been on state legislation um, and regulatory Uh, impacts of implementation for different policies. We've really looked at a bunch of different issues over the years, um, but I would highlight maybe two in terms of our priorities going forward. The first one might be obvious to folks in California is water. California has been in a drought for a while and we're trying to look at ways that buildings can really be an answer and a solution to some of California's water issues. Now that's on one hand looking at buildings um, from a water conservation lens. So each year uh, similar to the Greener Builder event that you attended we do a day long conference called our Water Conservation Showcase and we bring together experts, uh, technology providers, manufacturers around key solutions for buildings to reduce their water use. But going forward, a new element uh, to the water discussion is actually reuse. And not only just using less water to start with, but where can we use different sources of water and reuse water at different levels of quality for various functions throughout the building, whether it's flushing toilets, uh, cooling tower water for the air conditioning, or landscaping use. So really trying to get um, policies that promote and incentivize building developers to look at water through a different lens. The other uh, the other issue that I think we're going to be looking more at is uh, energy benchmarking and disclosure. So California has been sort of looking for a while at different types of policies that would get energy use information out into the public domain so that building owners actually know how their building compares to similar buildings. So am I doing well or do I have room for improvement? Um, several cities have passed uh, requirements to this, to this end, but we're actually looking at uh, how to craft a better sensible state policy looking at energy uh, disclosure and benchmarking across all building types.
0: Well, and what's exciting about that to me is that, you know, for the past 10 years, the blogosphere has been full of stories of people who were trying to um, create a greener home or a greener office space and had trouble finding the materials and the systems that they needed. And what you're doing is going to end up creating and institutionalizing, um, you know, a list of products and services and systems that will allow that to happen a lot more Readily, um, instead of it becoming, you know, a, a global research and and uh, you know search for materials and systems, you're going to make it right at everybody's fingertips. You know, Brendan, at the in the last minute that we have of the show, I'd like to give you a chance to talk about the value of becoming a member of your chapter and some of the resources and opportunities that you afford your members.
3: Sure. Well, you know, the first way that we see our engagement with our members as being important is through education. So we talked earlier about green jobs, and certainly at that first level, where our members are the folks who are out there delivering sustainable buildings, we want them to have the the most up to date knowledge on strategies, on products, on um, ways to deliver those buildings. So we, in a sense, provide educational resources to the industry that we helped create and support. Um, And we certainly do that with uh, training classes, with tours of green buildings, um, with more uh, extensive offerings like the day-long conference that you attended. So Mm -hmm. on one level, we're providing professional uh, support to that industry. Um, But I think also we're trying to reformulate the way that our members help give back to the community. And we have a few different programs we're developing uh, for next year that we really want our expert members to get out and drive impact in their local communities to help deliver sustainable buildings.
0: Brendan, that's fantastic and congratulations and thank you for all that you're doing and thank you for joining us on go green radio thanks to our listeners as well who were with us today we'll be here same time same place next week with more go green radio and until then have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green